This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. And welcome to episode 10 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we speak to Adrian Gore about a breakthrough partnership between Discovery and Vodacom, which opens a line to free COVID-19 related medical consultations for all South Africans. The analysts at John Hopkins University, the go-to global tracker of the spread of the virus, are now fretting about the tidal wave they think is about to hit Africa. A Harvard professor says the impact of the crisis on the economies of developing countries like South Africa is so dire that a debt standstill should be declared. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News. Confirmed global infections rose 8% to 887,000 Wednesday, led by the U.S. with a 14% increase there to just below 200,000. After mixed messages early on, the White House is now warning of, quote, three weeks like we've never seen before, unquote, with a projection that the peak in infections is still at least 14 days away, and deaths are now projected at anywhere between 100,000 and 240,000. For the moment, Italy continues to lead the world's death toll at 12,450, over a quarter of the global total of just over 44,000. But good news for that embattled country is that the growth in new infections is tailing off, with a modest 792 new cases reported Wednesday. That's out of a total of 105,800. The world's second biggest cigarette maker, British American Tobacco, says it has made a significant breakthrough in the race to find a vaccine against COVID-19 and says it will be ready to roll out mass production of 3 million doses a week before the end of June. BAT is running preclinical tests and intends trialing its vaccine on humans after fast-tracking with the U.S. drug authorities. The drug was developed by its Kentucky bioprocessing subsidiary, which previously came up with a drug to fight Ebola. After the billion each from the Rupert, Motsepi and Oppenheimer families, comes news today that Mary Slack, daughter of Harry Oppenheimer and sister of Nikki Oppenheimer, and her four daughters have made a one billion rand donation to the Solidarity Fund. The country's short-term insurance giant Suntum is the latest company to come to the COVID-19 party, committing 200 million rands to fighting the crisis. This includes 135 million rand to be used for premium relief for personal and small business clients. It's also making a 10 million rand donation to the Solidarity Fund that was launched last week by President Cyril Ramaphosa. Henley Business School says as part of its contribution to addressing the COVID-19 crisis, It will share all of its virtual education insights for free with other higher learning institutions. In the UK, where the COVID-19 death toll continues to rise, hitting a record 563 Wednesday, one in four doctors are now in self-isolation after getting symptoms of the disease, so they cannot help in fighting the crisis. 
The British Army has followed the Chinese example in creating a new hospital in just 10 days. This 4,000-bed hospital is inside a sports centre in the east of London and is being run by a 62-year-old nurse who came out of retirement. Similar hospitals are being created in Manchester, Birmingham and Glasgow to ease pressure on existing sites. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Adrian Gore is with us now on a day when you've announced a very interesting and, uh, well, nation-building partnership in many ways with Vodacom. Why did you select them? Um, you know, we've work, we, we worked with them on a, a few issues on how to work more with them, but I think one of the key issues here is about the, the vision here is about providing access to a, a doctor online for free. So we, we needed a telco partner where where we could get we get the data for free in a sense. So Vodacom and us have worked together to get this, I think, very powerful idea. You get you get access to a doctor for COVID-19 entirely for free. So I think it's a powerful partnership. They bring all the technology of the telco stuff. We bring in the the whole doctor framework and the chassis we built. So it's a it's it's a powerful. I think it's taken us time to build the chassis, but in the partnership, I think to to all South Africans, it's a very simple, powerful idea: access to a doctor for COVID-19 online. I mean, that's the idea. It's got enormous potential for after COVID-19, which I think we can explore in a moment. But where did the whole idea come from for the two of you guys to get together? You know, we've had this we've had this platform we built over a number of years called Doctor Connect, where you know, if you look overseas, best practice more and more is about telemedicine right in the front line, just as the first point of contact. I mean, it makes healthcare accessible. Issue here in South Africa is that the guideline has been that a doctor can't can't consult a patient can't consult a doctor online unless they've seen them physically first. So this has been a restriction, and on the back of that, we haven't actually rolled out Doctor Connect very aggressively. We've kind of almost kept it on ice. I think with the, with the COVID-19 issue and the imperative to get care to all South Africans, we had this idea of could we do this at scale? You know, and so talking to Vodacom, the idea came about that we could really create a, this powerful partnership. So it's, it's taken years to build the Doctor Connect platform and chassis, but literally over weeks together with Vodacom, we managed to scale this thing up. So it really is imperative of COVID-19. So has that blockage then been removed, i.e. that you don't have to first go and consult with a doctor uh, physically? No, it hasn't. I mean, the guideline remains. It's a guideline of the HPCSA, and that's why this service is limited only to COVID-19. So it really is about treating COVID-19. Uh, we continue to be in consultation and discussion with the HPCSA, the Health Professions Council, but we've pushed ahead anyway. We feel the imperative is just too great. So we're rolling it out uh, in the process. And any mobile phone will be able to access it? Any mobile phone, but I mean, most people have access to smartphones, but I think the power of this thing is you can go on on our site, by web or, you know, on mobile, um, you can use it via video or via kind of text. Uh, you can find Vodacom's star, triple one, hash, line. So it's very, very accessible. How many doctors are on the other end of the line? The, the intention is we're going to grow this. I mean, there are two sides to this. One is patients across the country, people across the country have access to it. For free, the other is that doctors consulting the existing patients are concerned about patient contact if, if a patient is in fact positive. So we see the other application is as doctors using it for, exist, for the existing base. So this is rolling out now. We built a pretty substantial training regime. Doctors can sign up and be trained quickly and get online. We have, I think, a core of about 150 doctors initially. I heard this morning that 5,000 doctors potentially are going to join. 
So we're moving quite quickly. We'll see in the next you know, couple of days how we do. And how do they get paid, the doctors, for their time? We have the partnership of Vodacom is collectively we've, we've funded the first 100,000 consultations. So we've, we've committed 20 million between ourselves and Vodacom to essentially buying 100,000 consultations. Uh, if we go through that and burn through that, we have to think about how to continue that funding. We have to look at other sources of funding. But doctors are paid for a consult. I mean, that's, that's the intention. And what do they get paid per consult on this platform? I should know. It's a normal consult fee. It's, I hate to sound mathematical, 20 million over 100,000. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I should okay. know that figure. I'll get it to you, but it's about there's 200, nothing. I mean, 200 bucks or so. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're about, absolutely. So it's, it's a standard fee, and uh, I mean, hope it, it's, it's worthwhile for the doctor, both I, now to broaden it to more South Africans, but to their client base. So any South African, anywhere in the country, with access to a smartphone. Anywhere in the country. If, if they, they're having yeah. some of the symptoms, they can then pick up the phone, uh, call Vodacom, even if they aren't a Vodacom um, client? Well, if you're, not, if you're not a Vodacom client, the data then will not be zero rated, so there's a cost to it. But our research has shown that, that uh, many people use multiple SIM cards, you know, so there's, there is, people often have the ability to get onto the Vodacom network, that is the hope. Uh, but they simply go on, uh, the access it, it's very simple. If, you, if you're not a Discovery member, you really just go through putting your ID number down. We do have verification through Home Affairs. You're on the system, ask a very simple set of questions about symptoms of COVID-19, and then you're in. You can access the doctor via video, um, and it's, it's, it's dead easy to use. You've got a big operation in the UK where the National Health Service has got something similar. Have you uh, modelled uh, Doctor Connect and now this new COVID-19 uh, risk tool on anything that they're producing? Oh, absolutely. So in the UK, there isn't this restriction on doctors, you know, in the front line. So we have a, a virtual consultation service through Vitality Health in the UK. They do, I think, close to 5,000 consults a week. Um, so it's it's being used. A lot of lessons we've learned in the UK on it. It's, it's incredibly powerful. So really successful in markets like that. And we'll really see how this plays out in this market here. As I said, it's narrow to COVID-19, but I'm pretty sure through the process we'll learn a lot about what's possible with it. Adrian, you're an actuary, so numbers mean a lot to you. If you are putting aside 20 million rand for 100,000 consults, that's a long way from South Africa's current infection level of around 2,000. Where do you see this thing going? You know, Alec, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's in early phases of the of the pandemic. I mean, there are twelve hundred, thirteen hundred cases reported. It's it's growing at thirty percent a day. I mean, that's the reality. I, I do think I do think government and the president have acted remarkably swiftly and rigorously with the lockdown. And hopefully, we can flatten the curve quicker than other countries. But you know, we've got a large population of people who live in close quarters, people immunocompromised with HIV and TB. So we've got some pretty unique challenges here. So we. We have modelled um, a number of scenarios on on kind of all the stuff coming out of the different countries, especially the Imperial College projections, and trying to understand where those numbers get to. Um, I mean, the difficulty here is is the range of projections is incredibly wide. You know, from from a kind of a low to medium to a high, where the, where deaths can be hundreds of thousands. I don't believe that will happen. I certainly hope it doesn't. But we are kind of preparing both in our health businesses and structures and our life mortality structures to understand that we can make sure we can do what we need to do for society in all of these projections. So we've modeled every single 
bit of data. We've actually looked at our client base to understand people that are vulnerable. So we're learning from the data now that particular ages, particular comorbidities are more vulnerable than others. We're actually reaching out to those vulnerable sectors of our client base to warn them, to try and get them isolated, to give advice to them. Um, so we are working literally 24 hours a day to use the data to try and keep people out of harm's way. But the projections are very, very wide. I had the um, opportunity to talk with your colleague, Elaine, Elaine Peddle, who's the deputy CEO of Pingan Health, uh, your partner yeah. in China yeah. yesterday. It was fascinating to get his insights from what happened in China. It appears as though we're drawing onto the, on those experiences. Uh, we are, we are. I, th- I think the, I mean, I think the Chinese, it's not, the Chinese lockdown was pretty, pretty substantial, you know, and I, I think the ability to flatten the curve is very much a function of how successful these processes are. Um, but it, it's kind of like, it's hard to draw conclusions. You know, you have Germany where, where mortality rates are actually quite low. You have, uh, uh, Spain and Italy where the mortality rates are incredibly high, you know, and the riddle here is trying to understand the, the denominator, the infection, how many people are really infected and trying to understand the age factors. So, you know, you can draw a lot of lessons from each of these countries, but I think we're learning more and more the best practice, flatten the curve, massive, massive testing regimes, track and trace, which you're not doing enough of. Hopefully we'll start doing that stuff. Um, but we are trying our best to learn from all areas. I think the Chinese did a good job once they got going. I think the Germans have done a very good job. I think Singapore and Singapore and um, uh, and South Korea did a great job of, of containing things. So we've got the opportunity to do the stuff if we act swiftly. It's interesting that all the countries that you mentioned, certainly China, Singapore and South Korea, have used digital tools aggressively. We heard in last night's uh, an update from the President, uh, Sura Ramaphosa, that we, those tools are now starting to be used as well. Is this a game changer potentially? I think it is a game changer. I think you've got you've got to test large numbers of people, and you've got to track and trace those people that are positive. You know who they've been with. That is a key thing in this in in, in the battle. Um, we until now have acted swiftly on the on the issue of of, of the lockdown, but I think the testing regime is we've, we've haven't had enough tests. We've had capacity issues. People are working around the clock. The labs, our business, and and the NICD and all the rest of it. So I think it will be a game changer. We've got to move quicker on this thing. I think the testing and tracking and tracing is crucial. And through this tool that people can access online before they even go to a consultation with a doctor, is this disease or is this virus uh, specific enough for them to quickly understand whether they've got it or not or if they're at risk or not? Well, the, t- the tool that we're rolling out now is primarily about kind of just telling us the symptoms, getting you to a doctor virtually, and the doctor then deciding one of three things. Either you, you know, leave it, you're fine or actually referring you to a pathology structure for a test or and or having you come back for a second consultation. So it really is the front line to a triage process that will happen after that. So it's trying to make the process into the healthcare system more informed. It's not trying to replace it. It's just trying to make sure that right at the front line you've got educated doctors helping people navigate the system. In the UK, again, one of our colleagues, Linda van Tolberg, was saying that there, if you have symptoms, the National Health Service will tell you to go and self-isolate for a week and thereafter to engage with them again to see, I guess, how serious it is and, and whether you need a hospital bed or not. Is that a similar line that will be followed here? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. 
I, I mean, I think every country has to optimize the resources it does have. You know, the ability to test every single individual instantaneously and get results is the best thing, I would guess, but it's, it's, not, it's not practical. So every country has got different ways of somehow, uh, how can I say, just using the resources they do have. I'm not sure we would do that. I, I, I think if you look at some of the best practice, other countries are testing much more vigorously in much greater numbers. Um, so I don't know where we'll get to. The tests are expensive. They take a long time, 24 hours, to do these PCR tests at the moment. There's stuff that's coming out quicker. I mean, I, I'm hoping we can test more people far quicker, track and trace. Um, and if we can do that, I think we'll get on top of this thing. Now, you have experience with Dr. Connect already. Are we a nation of hypochondriacs, or do we only go on there uh, when we really are sick? <laughs> I don't know the answers. It's interesting that since, you know, the one thing, you know, we've been asked often about just the extent of health claims we're going to see through the process. So we've modeled the stuff very carefully. But what's interesting is the other claim areas are dropping down now. You know, so the elective surgery, I think the worried well are a lot less eager to enter the healthcare system now. So there, there's all kinds of people in the distribution of people in the system. Um, I think this thing quite quite quickly gets rid of any fluff. You know, people focus on serious stuff. They delay elective procedures. So some of our modeling shows, ironically, that the healthcare consumption, uh, certainly in our base, is probably going to be fairly flat unless you've got a, a higher scenario of claims because the other stuff drops off. I know it's very early to start looking ahead, but Adrian, the the problem in South Africa and why national health has become such a big issue is because not all South Africans have access to proper health care. Surely something like this, if it's proven, would be able to open up a new avenue. I I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I don't know the answer to it, but I do think there's an interesting there's an interesting uh, vortex of just solutions being built. And I don't think the world will be the same after this pandemic, not in, in the way we work, but certainly in healthcare. I think lessons will be learned, bridges will be built. I'm hoping that it isn't divisive, quite the opposite, that the structures built that all South Africans, like what we're doing today, stuff that can is sustainable, that gives all South Africans access to healthcare in some way. You know, I, I think that will be a very good outcome of this uh, if we get there. And how else do you think the world's going to change? Well, I think, you know, I, th- I think the way we work, uh, we're learning a lot just literally in a week. I mean, we've got, we've got eight or nine thousand people, 80% are working at home now. We are fully business us- as usual at Discovery. Every single function is up and running. We are in meetings continuously, as I'm sure you are, Zoom and Microsoft Teams. I mean, I'm kind of learning how efficient you can be without having to travel around. And, you know, so I, I think the world of work is going to change. I think this, you know, the idea of working from home, which used to be an intellectual concept, which didn't really get going as it should have. I think this is going to accelerate that. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of, of profound differences in the way people think about things and how they they work. Um, it's interesting now you're finding it, the barrier between work and home has kind of disappeared. It's on one hand efficient, on the other it's quite disarming. You know, you do need routine and structure. So I think there will be profound changes. You know, I think the, a lot of stuff, national health uh, – Many social security systems came out of the Great Depression and the World War. You know, it's in times of adversity where you get this we rather than I. And I think there's going to be a lot of structural changes that's, that, that is going to happen from social security to work to healthcare that will linger after this, uh, after this pandemic for sure. And we've seen a lot of that has been digitally driven. 
just one final point. In China today, you have a QR code, as uh, as your colleague Elaine Pedal was telling us, and as long as your QR code is green, you can go into the shop. Or <laughs> if it's red, you have to self-isolate and so on. Is that a prospect for South Africa? Could we could we repeat that? I don't know. I mean, the stuff has both positive and negative consequences. You know, I think you end up getting if you're not green, <laughs> it's you know. You, you labeled as a potential danger. I mean, I think these things are, I think, have different implications in different societies. But I do think, you know, the kind of, the the era of surveillance uh, is going to be much more intense, I think, post this pandemic, for sure. Mm. And as uh, all of South Africans now, as a result of this, can dial star triple one hash on a Vodacom phone or uh, when they're going through to Vodacom, and if they've got... COVID-19, they will have access to a medical professional. That's the intention, absolutely. And there are enough medical professionals with, you say, 5,000 who are prepared now to come and join the system to actually be able to look after everyone in South Africa. That's the hope. We'll see how the experience plays out, but that is the intent, and I'm, I'm actually very confident together with Vodacom we can achieve it. And your models, how long will the 20 million rand last? We model a number of scenarios. Uh, we actually don't know. We don't know, Alec. Uh, I think we'll have to see. I'm, I'm hoping, not from financial perspective, I'm hoping that it doesn't last long. I'm hoping that we can make this thing really, really ubiquitous. The John Hopkins University in the United States is proving to be a reliable tracker of the path of the coronavirus outbreak across the globe, and it is also working on a cure. As we'll hear in this podcast, those tracking the expansion of the virus are very concerned about the impact it is likely to have on Africa. Dr. Andy Paycott, Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at John Hopkins University, spoke with Bloomberg's Carol Mazar and Jason Kelly. Well, right now the important thing is that multiple institutions are trying to set up controlled trials to actually firmly decide whether or not a treatment will or will not be beneficial. So I know here at Johns Hopkins we have a number of them going. Um, this early stage of the surgeon cases is the time when we can generate some data about what is the most effective treatment and then apply that to uh, cases that are coming down later down the pipeline. So a number of drugs are in place. We here at Johns Hopkins have been invested in using uh, uh, serum from individuals who've recovered as a potential treatment for um, new cases. Um, a lot of these things are now being tested, and the trials to show their efficacy are uh, being put online, and we hope in the next couple of weeks to start seeing the results of those trials. Dr. Pekash, we were talking um, yesterday uh, with one of the team up at Columbia uh, that's working with David Ho. He was talking, this doctor was talking about sort of the collaboration that is happening would you echo him that, that we're seeing a level of collaboration and, may, and maybe that's driven by a sense of urgency here? And, and what does that look like on, on the front lines where you are? I think that is, that is one of the most amazing things that I've been um, uh, experiencing over the past few weeks, people reaching out across disciplines, reaching from the clinical into the basic science, from the basic science into the clinical, um, trying to find ways that each of us can contribute to this overall goal of uh, helping to deal with infected patients coming through. My laboratory 
um, has uh, set up a whole new wing that's devoted strictly to helping the clinical groups here in terms of um, assays that we can do to support them. Um, and that's happened in the past four weeks. Um, and so there's been an amazing a number of, of, of discussions and conversations really with this idea that what can we do to help our patients as soon as possible. Um, and um, it, it's been fantastically um, inspiring. Well, let me follow up with you on that because it's interesting. As you were saying that, I thought about a question that we've been asking, you know, all the big important people that we talk to on this program and beyond, which is what do you think will change on the other side of this in terms of the way you operate as a researcher, as a physician, as a, a member of not just a team at, at Johns Hopkins, but in the broader medical community? Is this the sort of thing that, that could change the way you do business and, and do your work going forward? Um, you know, uh, it's been hard to find time to think about that, yeah, uh, given sure. everything else. But, but honestly, I really do hope that that is the case because, um, the, like I said, the conversations that we've had and the appreciation of how different people coming to the table can really contribute um, to overall patient management in this case has been um, eye-opening, I think, on both sides, um, uh, 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 both in the hospital as well as here in the research laboratories. So I really would think that this is an example of some place where all the best parts of, uh, of the medical uh, complex are being uh, shown and, um, and can show that they're working together. When you look around the globe, are there parts of the world, whether it's some of the emerging markets, we've talked about India and Africa, certainly on, on our broadcast, that make you a little bit nervous um, and the impact that the virus could have on them? Yeah, so I think the U.S. is really going to see, again, um, I'll use the term heterogeneous because I think that's the best one, even though it may be a little technical. Um, you're going to see very different epidemics in different parts of the country, really based on how how many times the virus has sort of moved into that area and how the public health measures, how effective they are and when they were implemented. So you're going to see different reports from different parts of the country. That's not in any way meant to minimize the outbreak or say that anybody's doing a better job than the other, but, but you're going to see different reports coming from different places about this. Um, and absolutely, I think, um, you know, we have collaborators in various parts of Africa, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and um, I think that's a place where we're very concerned about whether there's lots of – how large numbers of cases can be dealt with by the infrastructures already. Um, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, they just controlled an epi uh, epidemic of Ebola virus that's been going on for nearly two years. Um, an outstanding public health effort. My guess is they're not going to have to gear up to deal with yet another uh, viral disease, COVID-19. Well, and and Dr. Pekash, you know, when you when you mention that, it, it it brings me to another point, which is this idea that this is while that there's a short-term element to this and a sense of urgency, this is also a, a long game in many ways, and you understand that far better than we do, given the research that you have done uh, and given the different diseases uh, that you have tracked. What's the what sort of timelines do you think about in terms of? Obviously, there is a health crisis, an immediate health crisis that we have to deal with. But in terms of really getting our arms around this particular disease and coping with it for a, a serious amount of time uh, going forward, how should we think about that in the longer term? Well, uh, look to the positive examples. And there are co uh, countries there like uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, 
even to some extent Korea, that suffered a really large number of cases, but that have gotten those cases under control and are starting to really get far ahead of the virus. So those examples tell us that um, the virus can be controlled with good public health measures. And that's the most important thing. So I think getting this under control with the public health interventions is going to be the critical thing. Trying to send the message to individuals about changing their behaviors, even though after a few weeks it's going to be very, very difficult to keep some of these things in place. Um, we can get ahead of this. And there are examples out there of countries that have been able to control this and then restore some semblance of, uh, of um, social order um, afterwards or social opening up um, afterwards. Inside COVID-19, Trumpers News. Harvard professor Carmen Reinhardt says the coronavirus, Saudi-Russia oil war and the risk of debt defaults have created a perfect storm against emerging markets. She told Bloomberg's surveillance program she believes this disastrous trifecta is enough to warrant a debt standstill for developing countries. I recently wrote a piece for for a project syndicate basically saying this time it's truly different because we haven't lacked pandemic uh, in history, but the kind of policy reaction to try to save lives by basically shutting down economies is, this is, this is, this time is different. It's new. So, the idea of using past pandemics to throw light on what's going on, I don't think it will work. The major one, the influenza of 1918, was during World War I. We had 9% real GDP growth in 1918 because of the war effort, not because, you know, there were measures like what we're seeing taken today. So it's limited, very limited, what we so- can draw. Professor Reinhardt, Adam Tews, a Columbia professor, wrote a piece for foreign policy that was pretty stark, and it said the coronavirus is the biggest emerging markets crisis ever, saying that the pandemic is starting to topple one of the pillars of the globalization era. His argument was that this time is different, as you say, in part because the developed market, the developed world, cannot assist the emerging markets right now, given what we're seeing. Do you agree with him that this is the biggest crisis ever facing that, that sector? Well, it's certainly as big as the 1930s, which was very big. Uh, and it has the added dimension that it goes well beyond its origins are not in the economy, but its origins are in health. So yes, it's, it's, it's a stark, stark situation. We've talked many times about dollar denominated debt building up in emerging markets over the last 10 years or so. Are you starting to see those problems materialize now in the face of a stronger dollar, a shutdown in various economies, and a collapse for the backdrop going forward from here? The overused term perfect storm does apply because don't forget that underlying as the coronavirus wasn't big enough. We also have the Saudi-Russia war. Many of these countries are commodity producers, oil producers and commodity producers. So they have, going to your question, a massive shortage of dollars because their exports, the, the, the export values are way down, export volumes are down, and they do have dollar debt. So the expectation that debt servicing uh, and debt 
and defaults and restructurings are going to be on the rise is is something to you know be expected we thought many people not including myself but many people would come on this program professor and question dollar primacy dollar hegemony <coughs> in the next economic downturn are we finding out that the dollar is the place to be once again even in this downturn well uh funny you should mention that Ethan Elsetsky, a former student, Ken Robach and I have had several recent pieces on this very issue. And indeed, what we find is that in the 10 years after the 2008-2009 financial meltdown, uh, the dollar gained a lot of ground internationally as the reserve currency for two reasons. One is uh, the euro uh, fell back. Uh, concerns about its sustainability, uh, it, it fell back. It, it, and the second is uh, Chinese lending, which was has been massive all over the world, is dollar-denominated. So it's Chinese, but it's not in renminbi for the most part. It's in dollars. So the dollar, yes, it's the dominant currency and no evidence to the contrary at this stage. So, Professor... But dialing this forward from a market's perspective, dollar-denominated emerging markets debt just had its worst quarter since 1998. Are we going to see more of the same and a rash of defaults that rivals what we saw during the 1980s in Latin America? It's very possible. It's very possible. Now, uh, I, I have been hoping that the international community, the multilaterals with the major governments, uh, move towards a uh, a debt standstill, a, you know, a moratorium uh, before the defaults materialize. Because after all, the, everybody's incomes, this has at the household, at the firm level, at the country level, has been paralyzed. So debt payments should also likewise be temporarily. Uh, suspended, but absent that, it, it, it's already it's already happening. You're seeing the down the the downgrades in the credit rating agencies with uh, countries moving into junk and near junk uh, status. This has been episode 10 of Inside COVID-19. Until tomorrow, I'm Alec Hogg. Cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.